Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Hosanna to the Son of David, the King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let us pray. O God of our hope, today we joyfully acclaim Jesus as our Messiah and King. Help us to honor him every day so we may enjoy his kingship in the new Jerusalem, that new city that comes together with heaven when he returns. And we thank you that he reigns with you in the Holy Spirit forever and ever. In his, in his name we pray. Amen. Our first hymn is number 235, All Glory, Laud, and Honor. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let us then show our love for him by confessing our sin in penitence and with faith. Let us pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, maker of heaven and earth, you are good in every way and your word is true. We thank you for graciously sending your Son who went forth to Jerusalem to die on the cross for our sins. We confess this morning our sinfulness and need of your divine pardon. We have failed to love you with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Show us mercy, we pray. Forgive us our sins 
and strengthen us for obedience in the week ahead. Protect us from the lies of Satan and the voices that would cry out against the glory and righteousness of your Son. Fix our eyes firmly on him and sustain us as we boldly confess to the world the truth of his gospel. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our faithful Savior. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. The Lord, people of God, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor requite us according to our iniquities. But in Jesus Christ, he has removed our sins and makes us new. Dear people, in Jesus Christ, I declare to you as a minister of the gospel that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. And we respond together saying, praise be to God. Beloved of God, our Lord knows the troubles, that troubles will arise within the church, and so he taught his disciples, saying, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And we've been taught in the epistles, put on compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience, forgiving, forbearing one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive It happens all the time and in every church where disputes and divisions and disagreements and sin come up in the church, in the community, in the congregation of the people. And when they do, we are to follow the Christian teaching that has been handed down to us through the apostles. Do not be dismayed by the troubles and failures that come in the church, whether it's this one or in the churches at large, other Christian churches. Do not be dismayed by that because, and this is my mantra, if you will, but we must think of the church. I think the best analogy is, is a uh, convalescent home or rehabilitation home for sinners. So the church has those who've been brought into it by our Lord, and they're healing. They're being healed of their sin and um, re- being rehabbed or restored from their sin. So that's what we find here. And so sin will come up and is, is part of the mix, if you will. However, Sin is not the last word for us. Of course, it's Jesus Christ who's overcome that sin, and he's the one who is at work among us. He's the one that holds us together by his spirit. So we need not be dismayed by the sin, but we do need to take it seriously. And the scripture teaches us that when there's sin in the church, we are to act towards it with grace and forgiveness, um, sometimes having to confront it but definitely working with forgiveness. It's one of the key acts of Christians is to forgive. The grace and forgiveness that God has given us in Jesus Christ is ultimate. That's what is really the the big um, identity marker on us as, as a community, not the sin, but the forgiveness that we have in Christ that we can practice with each other. So every single one of us must listen to the Lord's call to bear one another's sin and to forgive one another and to help each other mature and grow uh, past our sin. This is the will of God for us in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Our hymn is At the Name of Jesus, number 163.
of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, tis the Father's pleasure, we should call Let us come together in prayer for the needs in this world. Let us pray. Almighty God, our gracious Father, we give to you our thanks and praise this morning for your goodness in creating us, for your mercy in redeeming us in Jesus Christ, and for your faithfulness in sustaining us even when we've been unfaithful to you. And most of all, we do thank you for Jesus Christ, Christ, our blessed Lord and Savior who, as the scripture says, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We praise you that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey to the shouts of Hosanna by the crowds, 
But while their praise turned into shouts of rejection, he has gone before us in the way of suffering and glory, and now you have highly exalted him. Give us, we pray, the grace to follow him in sacrificial discipleship. Hear our prayers for that discipleship. Enable us truly to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility to regard others as better than ourselves, looking not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. And we pray for the church. We pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow members of his one body, especially those for whom confessing Christ means persecution and possible death, such as in places like Syria and Iran, Nigeria, Afghanistan, North Korea and other such places in this world where it's obvious, even though in just about every place there are those in your church who are suffering. Give your church grace and strength of faith, and keep us mindful of the plight of our brothers and sisters. Hear our prayers for them. Continue to strengthen us, we pray, and enable us to shine like lights of your grace in this world. We pray, make our prayers for those who govern us, for Joe Biden, Gary Peters, Debbie Stabenow, Gretchen Whitmere, and our local city councils. Guide them, O Lord, as they exercise authority and work out your purposes with their rule. Give them wisdom as they respond to economic turbulence, to China's imprisonment of the Uyghur people, to the aggression of Russia and Ukraine and to the violence in our own cities. Hear our prayers. Give life and health, comfort and relieve your sick or distressed servants, and bless the work of those who minister to their needs. That those for whom our prayers are offered may be strengthened in their weakness and have confidence in your grace and loving care and firmly cling to Jesus Christ in faith. We pray for wellness and healing for Teddy and Terry, for Eduardo and Jeff and Fawn and Luca, for our friends Scott and Becky, Chris Barker, Angie, Mrs. Mesner, Karen, Shelley's father, Jamie's mother, Barbara's mother, and others who come to mind. Out of the richness of your grace and kindness, Give to us what we need, and hear our prayers for those who have financial needs who come to mind. We thank you for the confidence with which you enable us to pray, and we ask you now to hear our prayers as we offer them one by one for the communities, the cities, the towns in which we live. Hear our prayers. Almighty God, you are the fountain of all wisdom. You know our needs before we ask, and yet you graciously allow us to participate in your work by making our prayers. You also know our ignorance in asking and how we always come up short in our prayers. But we thank you that you have compassion in our weakness, that you give us those things that we are not worthy to ask for, to ask for, and in those things that we don't even think to ask for, and yet you take care of us and provide for us, 
and, and, and give us what we need. We thank you for this, and we do pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. seated. Let us once again come to this time of reading and preaching God's word with a moment of prayer, prepare hearts and minds. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are again reminded that your word is truth and your word is life. And we pray that as we come now to this time that you would Help us to see Christ and what he has accomplished for us in his great love and mercy. We pray that having seen this, that we would grow in Christ, grow in obedience, grow to glorify you in all that we say and do. For we do pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Our first reading comes from Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 to 9. Listen now to God's word. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. 
Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. Our Psalter response then comes from Psalm 118, printed in the bulletin. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them, and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and become and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Find vessel sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love Our epistle reading comes from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Again, God's word. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Finally, our gospel reading then comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, He sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, 
where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing it, through throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The word of the Lord. For centuries, sacred pilgrimages were a journey taken by Christians at least once in their lives. And of course, before it was easier to travel, uh, more convenient, Um, this probably was just a a one-lifetime, once-in-a-lifetime kind of opportunity. In the fourth century after Christ's death, Cyril, the Bishop of Jerusalem, promoted the sites related to the life of Jesus in and around Jerusalem as a destination for Christian pilgrimage. Before that, um, they, were not, they were not as such, such a big deal. Um, people knew about them, but they weren't uh, celebrated the same way that they were after Cyril. First, he marked off these sites and built them up with shrines or churches. Then he advertised them and invited Christians to come and pay homage to Jesus' incarnation, the place where he was born, to his baptism, to his transfiguration, to the place where he he the healing of Lazarus, Lazarus to his death, uh, homage to where he died, to his resurrection from the dead, and to his ascension. And these are just some of the key sites in and around Jerusalem where people would come um, on this pilgrimage. Soon Christians from all over Europe, North Africa, Western Asia were taking pilgrimages to the Holy City. There's a fascinating um, little book by a, a nun, a Spanish nun, who kept a diary of her pilgrimage in the 4th century. Right after this, kind of at the end of the 4th century, she traveled over there, uh, Evagoria, I think was her name. And I read it, and it was just fascinating to see, because she keeps such detail, to see what they were doing, where they went. It took her three years to complete the whole journey. Um, you can buy it on Amazon and read it. It's, it's a wonderful little, little uh, journal of the whole pilgrimage. Eventually, other sacred places became destinations for Christian pilgrim, pilgrims, such as Mount Sinai and St. Catherine's Monastery, at, at where uh, Mount Sinai is, in Egypt. Canterbury in England, Lourdes in France, Vatican City in Rome, Ephesus in Turkey, the Church of Our Lady of Guadalupe near Mexico City. All of these became sites, uh, pilgrimage sites for Christians, various kinds of Christians. And these pilgrimages were spiritual journeys. They were acts of devotion, and in the case of the Catholic Church, they were ways of gaining merit with God. That eventually became part of a system of gaining merit. Presbyterians and many other Protestants rejected much of the theology of the pilgrimages, 
Today, if Protestant Christians go to pilgrimage sites, it's as tourists and perhaps with a bit of nostalgia for what happened there. I just talked to one of the elders up at Pilgrim uh, OPC up in Metamora, and he, he uh, works with a company based in Turkey. So he went over. He goes over to Turkey all the time. He went over to Turkey, and one of the uh, people he works with, I think maybe his boss, is Roman Catholic, and the, together they went to Ephesus, which is a has been well-preserved, a city, um, of course, where Paul was and where the Christian church had a strong presence early in the years. And they, he said it was wonderful because they both walked down. There's a, a, a fantastic amphitheater there. And they walked down to the front, and they both they sang a hymn together. So even if there's not the theology, at least for this elder, not the theology of merit and everything, there's still this wonderful moment of being at Ephesus with all the, the uh, Christian history there. But Christian pilgrimages or a, a journey for our Lord has not been altogether dismissed by Protestants like us. It's been shifted over to the Christian life in this world. And a good example of this is John Bunyan's allegory of Pilgrim's Pro, uh, Pil- called Pilgrim's Progress. It's a very good example of understanding the Christian life as a pilgrimage, as a journey, Palm Sunday teaches us about our Christian journey. This church year, starting in Advent, I have been preaching on how the principal events of Christ's life, as they've come up, like today, shape our lives as Christians. And Palm Sunday is another one of these. You'll find it talked about in all four Gospels. Jesus was on a journey to Jerusalem, and now because of his journey, you are on a holy journey. This morning, I want you to hear about Jesus on his way to the cross in order to understand the way of the cross that you are on as a Christian. Now, we might hear our lesson from Luke as a touching story, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Jesus walked many miles through many cities. He headed for Jerusalem. It had been a long journey for him. Just a few miles outside of the city, he sent his disciples to find a colt in a nearby village. They found the animal, brought it to Jesus. With some help from his disciples, Jesus sat upon the colt, and with happy accolades, Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem together, singing and shouting as they went. There's almost something folksy about this. A crowd enjoying themselves, making merry, riding the old-fashioned way, walking along slowly, taking their time, a company of fellow travelers happy and full of song. The story does get a little ugly at one point later when some of the Pharisees came out. They were the naysayers. But overall, it's a touching story. Touching because there were were his comrades happy and excited following Jesus, unaware of what was about to happen to him in Jerusalem. And now the church's celebration of Jesus' entry in Jerusalem can also be touching to the sentimental soul today. Today, by and large, the Christian church around the world is celebrating this day known as Palm Sunday. When I was a boy, our church handed out palms, long fronds, and I know a lot of other churches did that too. Uh, At the end, after worship, when we were walking out, we'd get these long fronds. We all left worship waving them in the air. That's what we were supposed to be doing with them. I have to admit, some of us tried to have sword fights with them and were poking each other. But we were joyful. We were full of happiness. We enjoyed the celebration, and we played like kids. Around the world, people take notice of the church's worship this day. They notice our happiness and our warm-hearted community. They hear the church bells ring where those 
bells are placed, the sounds of hymns resonating from out of our mouths. Sometimes, if you're like me, I leave the church and there's one hymn that sticks in my head and I'm still humming it as I go. They hear this kind of thing. All these Christians world over celebrating the event of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Now, there's a way of softening what Jesus Christ did. It's like taking the coarse grains of wheat and grinding them over and over and over again until they become soft flour. We can do that with this story. It, it does not happen only, we can soften not just Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but any of the events of Christ's life. And I remember seeing a, a commercial on TV for a piece of jewelry. It was a cross with a piece of the stone from the place of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. And so they must have been taking little tiny pieces to make all these crosses. And it was contained in the middle of the cross. So you know where the two uh, parts cro- uh, cross. There was a little, a little uh, place in the middle where this piece of, of the stone from Bethlehem had been placed. And you could buy it for twenty nine ninety nine. And it came with a certification, certification of authenticity from the Vatican. In the commercial, a lady wearing the cross as a necklace tells us that it makes her feel like she is there with Jesus when he was in Jerusalem. The cross has been sentimentalized and, by sent, uh, and sensationalized. And by sensationalizing it, Jesus' death becomes trivialized. And we've all been set up to do this in our culture. We've all been set to think that what's true and real and authentic is what's interior, what's internal to us. And so when we feel those strong feelings of sentimentality, then we take that as as the real truth about whatever we're uh, interested in. It doesn't take much imagination to sensationalize the cross of Jesus. We can do it all in the name of depicting the realism of his death. Realism is sometimes just a smokescreen to sentiment sensationalize things. We can add the sound of a whip cracking onto his back, bits of metal and glass digging into his flesh. We can add those sounds. I've been in in, uh, churches where they will add those sounds to kind of try to make it more real sounding. Or we can go to the movies and see close-up shots of the nails being driven into Jesus' wrists and feet, the blood spurting out and spraying on everything nearby, the deep groans and sounds of agony and torture, and that will keep people riveted. And that will keep people interested, at least for a time, with the event. But as real as it may look, it actually tones down the event of Jesus' death. And so all of that's to say the same thing can happen with Palm Sunday. We can sensationalize it and trivialize it to the point where we've toned it down. There are some things that we cannot understand about the events of Jesus when we make them warm-hearted and sensational. For one thing, we can miss Jesus preparing a pilgrimage for us in this story. Now, we may look, what may look touching or folksy to us was really a royal and victorious event for Jesus. In our reading, Luke makes it clear that Jesus was the heavenly king on the way to the cross. Now, not long ago, I preached on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in the Gospel of Mark. When we have guests, preachers come here, I try to tell them, I've been preaching this, so they won't preach on it. But that's not the way it worked out this year with uh, Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday's come just a few weeks after I just preached this story in the Gospel of Mark. But there are a few differences between Mark's and Luke's telling of the story. And one is that in Luke, the crowd of his disciples followed Jesus, loudly praising God for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 38. Mark's story doesn't have that line, and he doesn't have that line, blessed is the king. 
That's something that Luke wants to bring out in his story to emphasize. Luke draws attention to Jesus as the king. And after speeding up Jesus' journey through the towns, you know, you, you realize in one verse you, you go a long distance there. Um, they're like mile markers on the highway. You go from Jericho, pass by Bethany, Bethphage, the other villages to, to the Mount of Olives on the outskirts of Jerusalem. So Luke zips us along through that and then slows the story down again for us. Jesus stops and Luke zooms in on him giving instructions to his disciples. He commands them, go into the village opposite. It's a command. Jesus told them what they would find. On entering, you will find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. The disciples are instructed by Jesus to untie the animal and bring it to him. Basically, Jesus commandeered the colt for his use. And Jesus gave his disciples an answer for anyone in the village who might ask what they were doing with someone else's colt. He told them to say, the Lord has need of it. Having received their orders, the disciples set out to the village on their errand. Luke tells us that they found it as Jesus said. There was the colt tied up in the village. As they loosened it, the owners asked them what they were doing. And repeating Jesus' words to the owners, the Lord has need of it, they allowed the disciples to take the colt. Now this was no request of a pedestrian in need. This was not like walking through Oak Park on 11 Mile Road and seeing those city bicycles. They're painted hideous colors so that no one would ever want to keep one. And they're stacked right there in, in the bike rack. And it's the share a bike program in some cities. And that's not what this colt was. It was not a share a colt colt. The city puts bikes up uh, out on the sidewalk so that you can take and ride to your destination when you're done Leave it, and then someone else will pick it up from there. And, and, uh, and then it can be just used by anyone as they need it. Jesus is the king on his way to the cross. This is a very different situation. His authority, he uses his authority to commandeer the colt. His authority supersedes the rights of our ownership. And we may not have realized it, but he's probably done this a lot with us. Where we own something, so we think... And then we, it's taken from us. And I don't mean in an illegal way. It's just it's taken away and used in a different, for a different purpose. Perhaps that's the Lord commandeering it for his purposes. There's nothing hidden in the story. It's not like a big secret. Jesus is the Lord, the one with, the divine, with divine authority. So far from being touchy and folksy, Jesus was entering Jerusalem the way rulers had entered Jerusalem many, many times before. When King David appointed Solomon to rule after him, he commanded his servants to make it so Solomon would ride on a mule to the priest and to Nathan the prophet in order to be anointed. Royalty entered the city uh, this way in in Israel. They rode on a donkey colt mule. But Jesus was entering as one who was already king. He wasn't going into the city to become a king. He was riding into the city as one who was already king. He entered like many other kings before him who had been victorious and entered their cities to the shouts of honor from the people. Some of them were Greek and Roman rulers like Alexander Apollonius. Apollonius. Um, They were some who had ridden into uh, the cities, and they had all these acclamations because they had been victorious. Others were Jewish freedom fighters, like Simon Maccabeus, who defeated the Seleucid rulers in the citadel in Jerusalem. There was a big uh, tower there that was a guard tower, and the the, uh, Greek soldiers were kept in there and stayed in there, and he was able to come in and, and 
defeat them and expel them from the city. Afterwards, Simon entered Jerusalem as the victor, and the people sang praise, and they, they, it's a famous story in Maccabees. Um, they waved palm branches, harps, cymbals, stringed instruments, all of that, acknowledging him as this ruler, this mighty, victorious ruler. Jesus was not on his way to become a king. He was a king entering Jerusalem. Jesus was entering as a king, but not just any king. He was entering as the Lord. The Lord who had defeated even the most ferocious powers of this world. We need to step back for a minute into the gospel. No, we have not been working through Luke. We've been working through Mark, but many of the same stories are there. And we know that Jesus hasn't been fighting like against the Greeks or the Romans or others per se, he's been fighting with bigger powers than that in the gospel. Along his journey to Jerusalem, he had met the evil powers who held people captive and he'd cast them out. He was repeatedly confronted by the Jewish leaders who wanted to stop him and the temptation to divert from his purpose, but he stayed firm. He stayed faithful to his purpose. When he taught, his words were full of heavenly authority. The people said, we have not heard teaching like this, full of authority. Heavenly authority. Everywhere he went, he healed those who were overcome by disease, over who were uh, unclean. He cleansed them. He forgave sinners. These are the kinds of battles Jesus was fighting on his way to the cross. Jesus was on his way as one who was king, and yet with humility. Israel's kings often entered Jerusalem humbly. That's one of the features of the kings coming into Jerusalem, as they came in humbly because they recognized that it was God who had given them the victory. It was God who was the mighty one, not them. So a good, faithful king would come into Israel and to Jerusalem recognizing and showing that humility that it's God who is the, the ultimate king of Israel. He's the one who has given their enemies into their hands. But this is all turned around with Jesus. Jesus is no earthly ruler like the kings of Israel or our presidents or the prime ministers of other nations who, when they become rulers, try to hold on to their position. You see, when a king in those days, in, in, well, even today, comes into the city for their inauguration or their coronation or whatever, they want to hold on to that power. They're coming in to stay in power, not to lose it. In our country, I, you know, the, the uh, different political parties are already planning for the next election when their, their uh, candidate has already moved into the, to the position of, of president or senator or whatever. They're already thinking about the next election, which is wearisome for us, I think. We, don't, we, you know, we just got done with all that. We want a break. But they're already starting to plan for that. This gets all turned around with Jesus. Jesus is no earthly ruler like the kings of Israel or our presidents. Jesus is the Son of God who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And that's such an important line in the epistles that we hear it a lot in in our worship here. This blows touching and sensational out of the water. Jesus is the Lord who does not selfishly assert his position over us. He goes on his way in humility. The Son of God, the heavenly King, humbled himself to bring us home to God. What Jesus did was not for show, like some hero in a parade waving to the people. The heavenly King rode into Jerusalem not to sit on a throne and have his attendants wait on his every need. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to wear a crown of thorns, which was of the most 
humble way, the most weak way you could die in the ancient world was on a cross. That, even a Roman citizen would never die on a cross. It was only for slaves and non-citizens. It was considered demeaning and the worst way to die. He entered Jerusalem in order to defeat our sin and bring us back to God. Well, hearing and believing that Jesus is the great king of heaven who humbles himself stops our busy lives, or it should stop our busy lives. We bow our knees, we sing out with astonishment and hearty praise here in the church. That's why we stop with the rest of the church on Palm Sunday and we sing our praise to him. Because if we understand what he's done, this heavenly king who's humbled himself for us, then we stop and give him praise. Our praise is mingled with the shouts of the disciples in the story. That's one of the great things about a story is you can't help but find yourself being inserted into it. And in this story, if you're a disciple of Christ, you're being inserted into those disciples who are following with Jesus, singing out to him and, and praising him. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And then we have our hymns that say, add lines to this, all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer King. And then another hymn, right on, right on, in majesty, hark, all the tribes, hosannas cry, O Savior meek, pursue your road, with palms and scattered garments strode. However, in our story, there's a strange silence. It's there behind the shouting and the singing of the crowd of Jesus', Jesus disciples as they were walking into Jerusalem. It's like the sounds of a cold stone wall. It's the silence of the city, the silence of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the focal point where God met humanity, where heaven and earth came together at the temple, the apex where God and man touched in this world, the holy city, Zion, city of the great king, as the Psalms say. When Jesus entered that city, the city was silent. The inhabitants were not lined up on the walls. We don't hear about that in the story. They were not there singing and praising God along with the crowd of disciples entering the city with Jesus. They did not come out of their homes inside the city and join the disciples celebrating as the Lord rode into the streets. We don't hear about any of that in the story. The city did not join their praise. The scripture says that some of the Jewish leaders were there. They came to where Jesus was to shut down the celebration. They told Jesus to tell his disciples to stop praising God, to stop singing, to stop singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And who knows, perhaps they were afraid that the Roman soldiers inside the city would hear it and think an insurrection was in the making and then you'd have a lot of trouble in the city. But what is certain is they did not believe that there should be such celebration and praise for Jesus. As far as they were concerned, it was blasphemous. And that becomes very clear later on in the gospel. There should be no praise for Jesus, the Son of God, who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. He was not welcome. God, who comes in humility to overcome our sin and bring us back to himself, is not welcome in our world. Only those who can shout others down, who can somehow wield political power, uh, who can one-up their opponents, who can squash their enemies, they're the ones that are welcome in our world, but not the kings who come in humility to die on a cross. We want rule and authority that looks like it's going to get something done. And so for centuries in our world, we welcome power that is devious, domineering, crushing, and raw. 
This is what our world has known for so long that it doesn't even recognize the Lord and King of heaven and earth when he comes. In spite of the cold silence of the city, Jesus entered Jerusalem anyway on his way to the cross. The humble Lord went on to vanquish sin. He continued to the cross so that we might be reconciled to God who created us and not continue to be his enemy. Jesus entered Jerusalem as the king, and I've gone through the story and tried to highlight a few things there for you, and you'll see why in a minute. Jesus entered Jerusalem as the king, and he did something else for us. He created the way for us to follow him through this life. Because he is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, he made the way and he put it into place. He could do that because he is the king. He's the Lord. He couldn't just point to the way and create an idea of the way. He actually put it into place. And it's not exactly a pilgrimage because pilgrimages tend to be infrequent. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to do something like that. And maybe you did it, um, you know, you took a year out after college or something, you did something like this. But you don't do it every year if you've done it at all. It's perhaps once a year or once in a lifetime. The way that Jesus creates for his disciples continues our whole life long. It's constant. The book of Acts tells us that the early Christian movement was called the way. Still, we might think of it as a pilgrimage. I think that word doesn't need to be completely thrown away. It's still a useful word. If by that we mean the journey of following Jesus our whole life long, then, yeah, let's call it a pilgrimage. And like pilgrimages, there are markers for the way that Jesus makes for us in this world. And I've been pointing those out to you in the sermon. There are markers for us on this way, and they're in our gospel lesson. It's the way of you gathering every Lord's Day to praise Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord of heaven and earth, like those disciples following Jesus, singing praise to him as the King and the Lord. That's one of the markers of this way. His disciples praise him as our Savior and Lord. It's the way of you going to visit someone in the hospital who hurt you deeply, See how he's doing. That's the way of self-denial. It's the way of one of you being asked by a woman in public if Jesus' death on the cross saves us from our sin, and you said yes, and she laughed at you. You don't get the fanfare of the world. It's the way of you confessing and confessing and confessing a sin that you've been struggling with most of your life and receiving the absolution of your sin. It's the way of you giving your time to help others even when you're weary. It's the way of you forgiving someone who assaulted you, verbally or otherwise. It's the way of following Christ in praise and self-denial, suffering, giving up your life for Christ, and forgiving and loving others more than yourself. But there are many other ways in this world, and you can start taking those journeys too. And if you find yourself not praising Jesus Christ with his disciples in the church, in worship, if you find yourself acting with pride and taking advantage of others, if you find yourself looking for the fanfare of the world, 
If you want to assert yourself, follow your own impulses, and hold on tight to your life, then you're getting off the way of the cross. You're moving away from the journey that Jesus has made for us. We all must be helped along the journey to continue on the way of the cross that Jesus has set for us in this world. That's one of the ways he works his grace out for us. Together, Jesus has set us on the journey of following him. And Palm Sunday is when the church celebrates Jesus on his way to the cross, and his way becomes our way as Christians. Today and every day, we may celebrate and shout our thanksgiving to God. We can say that line that we heard, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. When we soften what Jesus did, then the other journeys in this world look more promising. When these other journeys look like that's the way we really need to go, then chances are you've softened what Jesus has done. God's word today firms up the way of Jesus for us. Hearing his word, we see that the way of the cross of Jesus is the way of life and peace with God. It's the way that sin and evil and death are overcome. Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, in your tender love for us, you sent your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, to take upon him our nature and to suffer death upon the cross, giving us the example of his great humility. Mercifully grant that we may walk in the way of his suffering and also share in his resurrection. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please stand and let us confess our faith. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and is incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is number 300, Blessing and Honor and Glory and Power.
This is the Lord's table where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord and where we have true fellowship with one another as co-members of his one body. Listen again to the words of institution that set this meal apart. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he gave it thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We do welcome to this table all those who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and our communicant members in good standing of a Christian church. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for and willingness to turn from sin, and a determination in reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life in peace with and love towards your brothers and sisters. Christian people, today we have been reminded that Jesus Christ has created the way for us to live in this world as his followers. This day we have confessed our sin. We have received the assurance of God's forgiveness. We've heard his call to live in love. As you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him. And strengthened by the sacrament, walk the way of the cross in humility, forgiveness, love, self-denial, and praising Christ. And come to this meal with joy. Rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. Be strengthened by his gifts. And find here the grace you need to follow where he leads. Join with me now in giving thanks to God for our new life and salvation in Jesus Christ. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give Him thanks and praise. It is indeed right and just in our duty and our blessing always and everywhere to give you thanks, Holy Father, Almighty and Eternal God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For at the time of His Passion, as the time of His Passion and Resurrection draws near, the whole world is called to acknowledge His hidden majesty. The power of the life-giving cross reveals the judgment that has come upon the world and the triumph of Christ crucified. He is the victim who dies no more, the lamb once slain who lives forever. He is our advocate in heaven to plead our cause, exalting us there to join with angels and archangels and all the heavenly hosts who are forever praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord, God of power and might, Heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Receive our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And as we follow his example and obey his command, grant that by the power of your Holy Spirit, these gifts of bread and the cup may be for us a communion in his body and blood. For we do receive them with faith in that great faith of the church that has been put simply as Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once and for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom, and with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ, your Son, our Lord. Accept through him, our great high priest, this, our offering of thanks and praise, and as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us with your love, and unite us in the body of your Son, through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
We offer our thanksgiving with one voice, and together we say, Amen. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup and remember Christ's body and blood given for you. Receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, you humbled yourself in taking the form of a servant and in obedience died on the cross for our salvation. Give us the mind to follow you, the will to follow you, and to proclaim you as Lord and King, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Final hymns number 237, Ride On, Ride On in Majesty. draw you to himself to find in him a sure ground for faith, a firm support for hope, and the assurance of sins forgiven. And the blessing of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you all now and forever. Amen.
Good morning. Happy Palm Sunday. Can't believe it's already here. It's amazing. Um, a few announcements. Uh, first off, uh, just be aware that um, we will be uh, this Thursday. Uh, we will be having the women's prayer meeting at the Roberts House at 9 a.m. However, there will not be a Bible study here at the church on Thursday, so plan for that. Um, And then also a reminder that our Good Friday service will be at 1 o'clock here at the church. Um, And as we had discussed last week, it's our tradition that when we uh, worship, uh, when we have the Good Friday service, we leave in silence. Uh, So just uh, be aware of that as well. Um, CE uh, this morning will continue its discussion on the Reformed tradition and, and digging deep into uh, understanding the, uh, the uh, distinctives of the Reformed tradition. Uh, and I think that's it by way of announcement. I'm looking for hand raises and people jumping. And I'm jumping. Jeff is jumping. Um, I want to ask you to pray for something. I'm in con- beginning a conversation with the admin over at LTU, Lawrence Tech University, to see if I can start a midday prayer on site there um, once a week so that we can advertise it and students could, you know, stop in and pray with them. Hopefully it turn into some Christian conversation as well. But um, so I'm trying to see if they'll let me do that. Um, and so far I haven't really met any resistance. The person I, I guess I need to talk to is... Um, I send her an email, so maybe tomorrow I'll talk to her. In order to set this up, I contacted Brian Crago. You might remember the Cragos. They left church a few years ago. But um, he's now a public defender in Ann Arbor. It's kind of interesting. He said it's, it gets, it's, I could see him shaking his head as he's telling me this. There's just a lot of, he used the word obscene. You know, there's just a lot of cases that are just obscene, he said. But he has a real heart for those who can't defend themselves and need help. Um, and he said to tell you hi from the Crago family, so I'm doing that. Nice. Cool. Deneen. Um, we'll try again on the book table. Hopefully everybody's name is on there this time. Uh, so just check to make sure the address, emails, cell phones are all current, and then they can print out Yeah, that's the uh, phone list. We're continuing to make sure that we have accuracy there, faultless accuracy there. So uh, please take a look at that and make sure that uh, information is correct. Poor Denise. (laughs) Um, Okay. So her husband wants faultless accuracy. Um, (laughs) uh, There are two inserts. We should draw attention to the two. Oh, yeah. I didn't bring them up here with me. Okay, I'm going off the top of my head, but there are two conferences coming up. One is local at uh, Oakland Hills by John Fesco. He's a pretty big name in the OPC, a teacher. Um, He's been at Westminster. Now I think he's at Reformed Theological Seminary on creeds, why they're important in the church. The other one is Tony Miles, May 13th, I think. Yes. He's going to be talking on uh, unity. He's the pastor of New City Church in Grand Rapids, and a really mild-mannered, great guy. pastored for a long time in St. Louis. And he's African-American, which is pertinent because he's, he's talking about unity here. And I think it's uh, along the lines of what's going on between, you know, with races and things in our country today. Um, so I think he would very much be worth listening to. I always like what he has to say at Presbytery. So you might think about going to that as well. 
All right. If there's uh, nothing, oh, by the way, it's good to have the uh, a portion of the Timmis family here with us today. There's an, there another um, uh, longtime friend of our our congregation, and I can't remember how far back. So at least 23 years ago. That is something that I did not know, Linda. That's just, I thought I knew a lot, but that one I just, just definitely didn't know that. So, well, thank God for that. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and dismiss, and uh, we'll move to CE at a quarter two. <laughs>